1: a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Debbie Merritt interviews a veteran personal injury lawyer who specializes in vehicle collisions.
0: Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey, where you can enroll full-time or in the Weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu.
2: Support also comes from the University of Idaho College of Law and its two locations. The Moscow location has all the resources of the university's main campus, neighboring a picturesque, charming college town. The Boise location is in the heart of downtown, just blocks from the seat of government. Either Idaho Law location provides an abundance of outdoor opportunities. As the only law school in the state, Idaho Law provides near-exclusive access to the courts, the legislature, and the rapidly developing business and nonprofit communities.
1: I'm talking today with Tricia Dennis, a graduate of the University of Tennessee College of Law. Tricia has represented accident victims, has recovered more than $4 million total for her clients, and has even written a book to help clients cope with the legal side of auto accidents. She also has some provocative television ads
3: that we'll hear later. Let's start with an overview of your practice. I am completely at this point on my own. I have an extraordinarily able legal assistant. And I have one part-time person that does the the difficult organizing of files. And what type of cases do you handle? Almost exclusively personal injury, some medical malpractice, although Tennessee changed their medical malpractice law. That uh, makes it a little more difficult to bring them, so I don't handle as many as I used to So in addition to those few medical malpractice
1: cases, what types of personal injury are we talking about? Some what we call
3: trip and fall or slip and fall. But we're primarily talking about car wrecks and vehicle collision wrecks would probably be more accurate because you have to divide those into typical two automobiles getting into a collision or tractor-trailer rig completely different animal with a with a different set of rules. But we do have quite a few of those because here in Chattanooga, we are the junction of three interstates. Up until about two years ago, I also did workers' compensation under Tennessee law. That was what us lawyers here in Tennessee would look at as sort of bread and butter work. You wouldn't get particularly rich on it, you know, but it would keep your doors open. And then through tort reform, Tennessee really radically overhauled their system in 2013. But the problem is with tort reform, it's not just getting to the lawyers, it's hurting ordinary people who work for a living. And, and it's devastating, particularly the worker cop is just absolutely devastating. Why did you decide to focus on personal injury work? I think it was partly a bit by default. Secondly, it's kind of fun. I can't imagine, you know, the, the other kinds of law one might do, such as wills in the states would, I wouldn't be very good at it, and it would put me to sleep. Transactional law, I'm just not the type that's going to enjoy rich people. Nothing against rich people, but that would just not be my kind of thing. You said a minute ago that it's fun. What makes this area of law fun? You get to try cases sometimes. I mean, I'm down to where I only try maybe one case a year or two cases a year. But that is always fun. You get to be sassy, kind of. (laughs) But it's fun in that when you're doing personal injury, you're also doing a little bit of medicine. And you're doing a little bit of, of bioengineering. I have a slip and fall that I've been working on today, working on what we call a demand for settlement. This client's a great client, and he came into a store to buy his little kitties some cat food. And I assure you, if I could attach a YouTube video of kittens to this demand, I would do it. He saw a big sign that said, cat food, three, four dollars. And of course, you don't have quite the same comparative fault standard in a grocery store that has signs and competing for your attention to, you know, look over here, not down at your feet. And he took a step forward. Someone had left a piece of cardboard from stocking some shelves and he slid on it. And he has three compression fractures in his vertebra. And he's had to have what's called a kyphoplasty. So I had to look into a kyphoplasty. That's where they essentially put cement in your vertebra. Now, when looking at his medical records, he went to a lot of different, several different doctors. One would describe this injury initially as acute, then it got to be subacute, then it got chronic. And those are real red flag words. So then I had to start looking at how a compression fracture occurs. Well, you get into biomechanics, you get into essentially engineering. It sounds like, There's
1: a great combination here of just stories about people, people, you know, the man who loves his kitty and wants to get cat food. But then with that, the science, the fun of intellectually looking into what causes these injuries. If
3: you're going to maximize damages, and you have to maximize every little nugget in your case, and that does involve doing research, thinking about How am I going to show the insurance company I can demonstrate to the jury why a fall like this would crush his vertebra? How you approach a case, and everyone has different philosophies, but my philosophy is you are telling a story. If you go to trial, you really are something of a Broadway producer. You're going to put on a play, and a play is nothing but a story. You mentioned that you only go to trial about once or twice a year.
1: Now. Now. That was not the case when I started out. And was that because your
3: caseload has changed or because the courts have changed? It was because when I started out, I was a woman and I was the new kid on the block. I was going to have to try most things. The offers that I would get would be so minimal. And obviously, and actually my caseload is, is vastly expanded from when I started out, but At that time here in Chattanooga, I was maybe one of three. I I might still be one of three women plaintiff lawyers, but there weren't very many of us. And so it was constant testing. But now, I mean, obviously, I've been around for a long time. I deal with, you know, some of the adjusters I deal with are the same ones I dealt with three months ago. So they know you're serious and that you'll go to trial if you have to. If you want to avoid war, you've got to show that you're ready for thermonuclear war. And you have to be very exacting, very detail-oriented. And when you're dealing with the insurance companies, those demands, no mistakes, no margin there. You just don't have it.
0: Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu.
2: Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online Flex JD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, visit albanylaw.edu today.
0: Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes.
1: Let's walk through a typical case. You have a client who contacts you and arrives for an initial consultation. If they get an office
3: appointment, chances are they have a viable case. How do you do that initial screening? My paralegal, Judy, is amazing. If somebody says, you know, I was in a car wreck and I want to come see Ms. Dennis, and Judy will say, well, tell me a little bit about your problem. And they'll say, well, I was going down Highway 64, and I tried to avoid a bunny rabbit, and I ran into a telephone pole. Well, (laughs) they're not going to get an appointment. The next one will say, well, I was driving my car, and another car came over into my lane, and we had a head-on collision. Okay, do you have insurance? No, I don't have any insurance about Forty percent of Tennesseans have no insurance. Mm. Well, have you heard from the other insurance company? Well, he doesn't have insurance either. Well, they're not going to get an appointment. There's, there's no money there. But here we have somebody saying that, you know, I was on Gun Barrel Road. That's a big road here. And I came to a stop and the car behind me didn't and ran into me, rear-ended me. Well, who's your insurance? Mine's Liberty Mutual. Have you heard the other heard from the other insurance company? Well, yeah, their state farm will come on in. Now, we know that at least we have liability. There's no question of liability. So they'll come in and fill out paperwork, some forms, and I'll go meet with them. Look at the police report, and, I, and I'll say, now let's start at the top of your head, and let's work down, and let's talk about how you're feeling. And I use that approach because most of the time, now, they might have gone to the emergency room. I don't even have to look at the ER record to know what happened. It's not because I'm a wizard. It's just that I know they will have gone to the ER, was in a wreck. My neck hurts. My back hurts. They're going to get an x-ray. They're going to get some muscle relaxers. They're going to get some Lortap. The hospital will say goodbye, good luck. Go see a primary care physician. Much of the time, because Tennessee is also has a high rate of uninsured people, and we did not take the Medicaid expansion of the Affordable Care Act. So at least 50% of my clients have no health insurance, which means they have no doctor to go to. So I know they haven't gotten a thorough exam, and we'll start talking about, well, where do you hurt? My neck hurts. Well, my shoulder hurts. Well, tell me about your shoulder, because one of the things you'll see in a a rear-ender, if it's impactful enough, is a torn rotator cuff, particularly if they're of a certain age. Well, I can't lift my arm above my shoulder. Well, right there, you know, we may have a rotator cuff problem. And, you know, you go on down and you get the history. Have you made neck complaints, back complaints? If I get five years of your past medical records, because the insurance company sure will want it, possibly, what am I going to see? We go over that. And then I say, we're going to get you to a doctor. And I have a doctor that, a physician that I work with who is, let me stress, very independent. I would want him to be independent. He does not say what I want him to say. I do not send my clients to chiropractors. In fact, I tell them, if you go to a chiropractor, I will fire you. I will not represent you. But I send them to this medical physician and I know he's extraordinarily thorough. And what he does, even though, They don't have insurance to give him. I know there's going to be money here. So they will sign an assignment with him. And he charges a little bit more to cover the fact that he's going to have to wait on his money. And he'll check them out. And if it looks like it's just a neck or back strain, the next step is they'll go to physical therapy. And I explained to them why you have to go to physical therapy. That's because, first of all, it's going to make you feel better. But second, physical therapists... Take wonderful notes. They take wonderful data. They can talk about the trapezius muscle is spasming today because you can't fake a spasm. And that's objective data that a jury really likes. We like you going to go into physical therapy, client, because we're going to get a lot of great data. The second reason we like you going is because a jury is going to take your injury more seriously if you went through the time, expense, and inconvenience of going to physical therapy three times a week for three or four weeks. You're
1: both helping the client and preparing for possible trial or settlement negotiations at the same
3: time. Always. Always. And my philosophy is... If you get the medical in place, if you, if you make sure your client is getting the proper medical care, the case tends to fall in place. And one of the things we have to tell the client, because they don't like going to physical therapy, because darn it, it is inconvenient, is you need to understand every time you don't go to physical therapy, it's like you're opening up that spigot and letting money run out. Then you have some clients who like to go too much, you know, they will, you know, they may have heard on the street, oh, if you run up your medical bills, you're going to get a whole lot more money. Well, no, your lawyer will get a lot more money and the physical therapist will get a lot more money, but you'll be lucky to walk out of my office with $500 because we have to pay these people back.
1: You mentioned before the demand letter and how important it is to get that right. Yes. Could you
3: explain where that comes in the process? So my client will call up, will tell Judy, my paralegal, hey, I'm I'm through treating. I finished, had my last physical therapy visit. Well, that's our cue. At that point, we probably have already gotten in their ER records or whatever else they had. And that's where we we get in the final doctor notes. We're going to get in the physical therapy records. We get in all the bills. And that process takes a month. A month later, I sit down, go through it. Please said this letter is is a demand for settlement in the amount of, and it will be an absolutely unreasonable amount of money. Let's say they have $7,000 in medical bills, which might not be unreasonable. Well, I'll start out $25,000. Now, I'm not going to get close. I'm not going to get within shouting distance of $25,000. But you have to start out fairly high, never so high that the adjuster just gets offended, but certainly never low where you know you find yourself negotiating against yourself.
1: I remember years ago. Remember Robert Bork, the conservative judge. I do. Unfortunately, yes. But remember, he slipped and fell at the Yale Club of all places, and he did. He hurt his leg, I think, fairly badly. And sued for a million dollars. Are you serious?
3: Oh, absolutely. How oh, did absolutely. I not know that?
1: <laughs> he settled the case ultimately for an undisclosed amount. I hope it, it was $3,000. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. It's it's a great example of how people are critical of the personal injury system until it happens to them.
3: And I find that all the time.
1: Tricia, let's get back to the demand letter for your client with the $7,000 in medical bills. So far, you've told us that the letter starts with the demand for an amount much higher than that.
3: What comes next? You point out the liability, and you use a lot of action words. You always, always write in the active voice. I mean, I really do think that makes a difference. And I have my own little technique. I never say the insured's name. I dehumanize them. I say, you're insured. My client was proceeding down Gun Barrel Road, and when traffic slowed to a stop, she stopped lawfully. However, your client, ignoring the traffic before him, rammed—you use those kind of words, you know—rammed, Ram, not good one—rammed in, into the back of my client's small Hyundai Elantra. So you you write like that, and I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but it gives the adjuster an idea of how this lawyer is going to present this to a jury, the kind of words, the action words that the lawyer is going to use, because adjusters are supposed to use some independent judgment. So you you talk about liability, and then you get to medical history. When the crash occurred, and you use words like crash and collision, it's never an accident. When you teach your students, if they use the word accident, wrap them on the knuckles. It's never an accident. It's a collision. It's a crash. A catastrophic event. Oh, yes. Now, my dear Hamilton County jurors here in Chattanooga might not know what a catastrophic event is, but they sure would know what that is up in the more enlightened frosty north. And I don't mean to be ridiculous about it, but you're advocating. So you use words of advocacy. So then you go to medical history. When the crash occurred, my client immediately felt burning pain in her neck or in her back. Then you go on and you talk about some of my colleagues do not get this involved, but I discuss each and every doctor visit. It
1: sounds to me like you put as much effort and creativity into writing these demand letters as
3: many lawyers do for an opening argument. I'm trying to demonstrate to the insurance adjuster that we're going to impress the jury, that there's medical research behind why you hurt after being rear-ended. A simple demand going to run probably about three pages. And then at the end, you do the demand. In light of the foregoing, we're demanding this utterly unreasonable amount of money. This demand shall remain open for two weeks. Thereafter, we'll file suit. I look forward to your thoughts. And we all know that I'm not going to file suit at that exact 14-day mark. I might have one every 18 months where they just mess around so much I do finally file suit. But that doesn't happen very often. So the adjuster will call back and say, here's my really unreasonably low demand. I don't even tell my client about the first off. And I tell my client, I'm not going to tell you about the first offer. It's just going to annoy you. It's going to be so low. It's just going to upset you. There's no point to it. In Tennessee, the average verdict is about 1.1 times the medical bills. And if I can't get one and a half times, I'm real disappointed. State Farm will come back with, let's say, 10000 or $11,000. And that's where the second writing is. I give the client a rejection acceptance memo. Because, frankly, negotiating for a settlement offer is not the hard part. The hard part is educating your client. You want your client to focus on the math of the case. You want your client to forget what Uncle Louis said about his neighbor who had a hangnail and got $5 trillion from GEICO. Because of the drumbeat of we need tort reform, clients think, Well, there's these out-of-control juries. I'm now hurt, so I ought to get $50,000 for this, this relatively mild soft tissue injury. And you really have to knock the stars out of their eyes. And the way I do that is they have to review jury verdicts for their particular injury, for their particular state. If it's Georgia, they get to see Georgia jury verdicts. If it's Tennessee, Tennessee jury verdicts. They have to review those, and they see all those zeros where people got zero money from a rear-ender or 1.2 times. They have to look at that memo, which is about six pages long. It can be, you know, a lot of reading. Sometimes I have to read it to my, my clients.
1: So the client has a memo explaining to them in their particular case what the pros and cons are. And you've also put it in the context of overall recoveries, including
3: zero verdicts. Then you go on to say, okay, remember you signed a contract that said, not only do I get one third, I get whatever it costs to go to trial. I get that reimbursed. And so here are my estimated, this is what I estimate it will cost to try your case. Let's look at this. If you go to court and you get four times your medical bills, After we deduct all of this, are you any better off? What's the settlement equivalent? They have to sign off on this. At the end of that, it says, I want to accept State Farm's offer of $11,000. I do not want to accept State Farm's offer of $11,000. But either way, they have to sign. The reason I do that is it takes the emotion out of it. I explain to them, it's math. And it allows me to say, I want to do whatever you want to do. My job is just simply to educate you. If you don't mind, I'd like
1: to ask you a little bit about the economics of your own practice. You're really <laughs> hard. You're, real hard. you're, you're really a, a small business owner in addition to being a lawyer.
3: Is that right? I would put small business owner before lawyer. Okay. I think that's real important for anybody contemplating going to law school in this present day climate that says if it doesn't work out, I'll just hang out a shingle. Don't approach it that way because you are a small business owner before you're anything. Can you give me a sense of what your office expenses are? Well, as a matter of fact, I thought you might ask that. So I pulled out the tax return that I just filed. Last year, I grossed. This isn't what I settled for cases. This is what I took in as what we call legal settlement income, about $325,000. But to put that in perspective before mm-hmm. people think, oh, I'm going to be written, no. I spent 140 of that on advertising alone. Postage alone was $2,100. Case expenses, and I only tried one case last year. Mm-hmm. Case expenses were almost $25,000. Wages, wages are about $65,000. So you can start doing the math. My office is a very nice office but it's not in a glass and steel high-rise. My rent's about $1,200 a month, which is pretty good for Chattanooga. And I'm in a suburban area. Out of what sounds like a pretty juicy figure, I'm lucky if I get to keep a third. Obviously, if I didn't have to have that advertising, I'd keep more. But advertising clearly matters a lot for you. You cannot make money in this business without cases. You cannot get cases unless you are advertising. It is not possible. The advertising lawyers are putting out of business the lawyers that have been here even longer than I have that you would think have a client base. What's the type of advertising that pays off best for you? I've tried several types and at the end of the day, television is what works the best. Trisha, I happen to have here a link to one of your ads that's
1: on YouTube, and I haven't seen it myself yet, but I'd like to play it uh, for our listeners and myself and then hear your reaction.
3: I've been injured in a car wreck,
2: and I need the insurance company to pay all of these bills. I need help.
3: I'm attorney Trisha Dennis, and I can turn your car crash into lots of cash. Trish helped turn this car crash into all this cash. There's my crash. Here's
2: my cash. Trish got me my cash.
3: If you've been injured in a car crash, I'll get you all the cash you deserve. Call attorney Trisha Dennis. The appointment's free
1: at 892-5533.
3: It takes tackiness to a new low. (laughs) This is now the state of law practice in America. I was not the original lawyer in my area to have a jingle. And it works. I take it that you run the ads because then people respond and they come to your office. The amount I cited for last year 140 I think I was spending about 12 grand a month. I've now almost doubled that. I'm up to 20,000. And to meet that obligation along with my other obligations, I have to sign up at least 6 cases a month, about 72 a year. That's probably about all one lawyer office could handle properly. I mean, you can do the math. Out of the 72 cases, there may be a few that wash out,
1: a large number that will settle, and then just that one or two that go to trial. We have to
3: make sure when you're spending that kind of money, you have to choose your cases very, very, very carefully. You cannot take just what comes in the door ever because you're throwing money away on it. So, Trish, you said you've been
1: spending about $20,000 a month now on advertising. Does that buy you one
3: out a week and out a day? I think that is getting me around 45 or 50 a week. That does not count what we call overnights where we just you kind of get them for free. I advertise only on the broadcast networks. No I'll take that back. We are now advertising on TBS, but for the most part all of the money goes into broadcast. Cable does not work very well because the audience is just too splintered. Let me ask
1: you, based on that, do you think we have too many lawyers? Is that part of the problem here? Is
3: that a trick question? It is a profound, profound problem, at least in this state. It is a very serious problem.
1: Part of why the advertising is getting more intense and it's costing more for each lawyer.
3: Well, there's no question that's part of it. And I don't want to sound like, you know, I've got mine, where. I think the trouble really comes, and, and where, where, the, where the impact of too many lawyers is much more profound, is, for instance, someone my age, I'm 59 years old, I've been doing this for a long time, someone my age, we should be mentoring young kids who, either by choice or by circumstances, are not getting, you know, big firm jobs, what passes for a big firm in Tennessee, or not going to government work. We should be mentoring these people, but we can't. I mean, there is no way I could mentor a young graduate from UT simply because I cannot train my competition, but I cannot stay in business and have somebody else learn my business model and then compete against me. Now, when I was starting out in 1987, and it wasn't quite so bad. It was beginning to to get there, but it wasn't quite there. I was mentored by a mean son of a bitch, but he knew how to teach me how to practice law. And he was willing to do it. I look back and realize he was really uh, sacrificing quite a lot in doing that. But he could do it because there were still enough cases. I wasn't going to hurt his business. I think that is one of the saddest outcomes because quite frankly, I cannot imagine practicing law any other way but Having your own little firm and building something, and and, and, and and I'm sure for some people, big firm life is great, but particularly for a woman, sexism, believe me, is still alive and real and law. But for somebody trying to raise a family, having your own little firm is the great way to do it.
1: I wanted to ask you actually about sexism in the law. We are, it happens, exactly the same age. I turned 59 yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you very (laughs) much. (laughs) And we started practicing law during the same era. And I certainly remember being a novelty and facing skepticism from clients and other folks that I interacted with. Uh, Was it any different in Tennessee?
3: (laughs) (laughs) You started in Ohio, right? Or did you start in Illinois? i actually
1: started in atlanta
3: ah well okay
1: in terms of practicing law
3: we're in atlanta
1: i was with a firm called bondra it was then called bondra miller hishon and stevenson
3: okay i I didn't know whether we call it god and spalding up here king and spalding oh no 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 i was at the law firm trisha that
1: sued king and spalding in the sex discrimination case
3: that's wonderful. You did we, the work of you did the work of God. That's of, right because
1: no other firm in town would take the case. We represented Betsy Hishon.
3: Well, good for you cuz they really got hung on that if I recall. So, Trisha, have your experiences changed? We're now into the 21st century. I I'm not sure it has it has markedly changed, but I will say when I first started out, I actually had and I can say this cuz he's dead now. I had a magistrate, a federal magistrate say to me, and this was probably around 89 or 90, something like that, say to me, you know, Trish, I like you all right, but women have absolutely no place in my courtroom. He said it. I hear stories like that from my students here in Ohio today. Particularly the women. If you're young, probably whether you're good looking or not good looking, you're going to get hit on there's always those wolf lawyers, inevitably, they're going to hit on you. Thankfully, I'm old enough and mean enough. It doesn't happen anymore. But particularly in my middle years, you know, if I beat a male lawyer in the courtroom, there were a few that took it really personally. I mean, offended it as though you had and were attacking their manhood. I think they kind of look at me like, you know, you're you're taking food out of my kids' mouths. Why don't you go home and let your husband support you? I think that attitude is still... Or go do some nice pro bono work. Yeah, or why can't you do that guardianship stuff? You know, we don't want that. I don't want to imply that it is as bad as it was when I started out. But it's still very, very much alive. You have to learn how to be extremely tough, Learning how to cuss and use all those words that your mother told you not to use is a very important part, believe it or not, of your toolbox.
1: That's exactly what I had to do when I started teaching the criminal defense practice. Well, that's interesting. You wouldn't wouldn't believe how I can cuss, (laughs) Tricia. I'm glad to hear somebody
3: else, another woman, say that because... It's just the way people talk in the courthouse, well, it, but it's not just that. It's how you get their attention that you're crossing a boundary. Right. It's, right. it's wow, gosh, she, she must be really pissed off. It's what
1: you told us earlier with the adjusters. They have to understand that you mean business. And yeah. that may mean being overly aggressive and tough for a little while until they get that. We've talked about advertising and we've laughed somewhat about jingles and so forth. But at the end of the day, the people that you represent are people who have been injured they have real injuries. We've talked about the fact that you wouldn't take their cases if they didn't have injuries. No.
3: I know very few lawyers that would. It doesn't make any economic sense. No.
1: And we also know that the middle class today, uh, let alone the working class that's less than middle class, they're living on the edge. They don't have extra money. So if you're injured in a car crash
3: and you have these medical expenses, what do you do? I've got one guy who is a cook. His elbow got shattered. What's he gonna do? He wasn't making that much money. He can't go back to to work. They had to put pins in his arm. He's out for the next four or five months. He's not gonna have a job to go back to. You hit a chord when you approach it from working people who are already on the edge. They have no cushion. I don't get calls from the rich part of Chattanooga. I don't get calls from those people. I get calls from very ordinary people who are so on the edge three days, never mind three weeks, three days without a paycheck, is going to tip them over.
0: I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.